0: Welcome everybody, it's Horsehide to Cowhide, America's Pastime, featuring your host, Ricky Litwinkiewicz. Welcome to Horsehide to Cowhide, America's Pastime. I am your host, Ricky Litwinkowicz, and this week we have an amazing jam-packed episode for you. This week we have our usual contributors, Mark Braverman, the lifelong baseball fan, Enzo Pontrelli, our baseball historian, Alex the Bear Man from Texas, and this week we introduce to you Nicholas Russell, from the Mac and Black podcast and the Bear Cave podcast all giving their opinions and historical facts on this week's show let's not sit here and just look at the newspapers anymore let's get to this week's show down history road July 12th 1901 Cy Young of the Boston Red Sox records his 300th victory with a 5-3 victory over the Philadelphia A's. July 12, 1949 Larry Doby of the Cleveland Indians and Jackie Robinson, Roy Campanella and Don Newcomb of the host Dodgers became the first black players to appear in an All-Star game. The American League took advantage of five National League errors to win 11-7 at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. July 12, 1955. At Milwaukee's County Stadium, Cardinal outfielder Stan Musial comes to bat leading off the bottom of the 12th inning in a 5-5 tie at the All-Star Game. After Yankee catcher Yogi Berra complains about his feet hurting, the man tells him, don't worry, I'll have you home in a minute, then promptly hits a game-winning home run off of Frank Sullivan on the next pitch.
1: Stan Musial played in 24 All-Star games. No one has ever played in more. In 1955, in his 12th Midsummer Classic, Musial led off the 12th inning with the game tied at five in Milwaukee and promptly ended the affair with one swing. I told
2: Yogi before I got up to hit, I said, Yogi, let's end this thing.
1: And there it goes. A home run over the right field screen. The National League wins 6-5. Musial's six career All-Star homers are the most ever.
0: July 12, 1979. After a delay of an hour and 16 minutes, the White Sox forfeit the second game of a 20-night doubleheader against the Tigers when over 5,000 adolescents refused to leave the field during Disco Demolition Night. Mike Veek's promotion involves admitting fans for 98 cents with a disco LP or 45 and then collecting the vinyl records to blow up in center field. WBBM Time 918, time
3: for Brad Palmer Sports. Many
2: of the fans are scattering off the field now when they sight the police. And many stock security members are joining the police, which are now about 40 or 50 and they're slowly, now rapidly, walking out the center field where the fire is burning. The fans are now streaming off the field in great numbers, and I doubt if very few will be left to confront the police as they come in helmets and nightstick gear.
3: That was the scene between games of a doubleheader at Comiskey Park last night as White Sox owner Bill Veck went a promotion too far. It was billed as disco demolition night. A rock disc jockey came up with the idea of blowing up disco records as part of his self-serving campaign against disco, and the White Sox went along by admitting anybody bringing a disco record for 98 cents.
4: You try something, you don't know how it's going to end up necessarily, you think it's a good idea, uh, and it just got out of hand. He he was more popular, had more pulling power than we felt was possible. I suppose I should have anticipated this, but nothing has ever given any indication of it. We had rock concerts in which we didn't have this many people.
3: 50,000 people got in before the White Sox called upon Chicago police to help close the gates. Didn't take long for the realization to set in that rock fans, under the influence of beer and drugs and armed with disco records they had been invited to destroy, don't mix with baseball. There was trouble almost from the start. Tiger outfielder Ron LaFleur saying,
2: Without a doubt, it was the worst conditions I've ever played in. You know, I was in Detroit the opening day, and like they threw about five bottles at me. But they, they were throwing golf balls out there on one play that I made in left center field. I caught a ball, and the golf ball went right between my legs as the ball was going into my glove. And I looked down there, it was a golf ball. I thought it was a piece of paper or something. Then there was a few bottles thrown out there, and then records were zooming by every, everywhere. I mean, records came by my head, one stuck right back
3: behind my foot. Even the White Sox outfielders were wearing batting helmets. The White Sox lost the game 4-1. to Then came the main event. A crate of disco records was blown up in center field, at which time an estimated 7,000 people ran onto the field. The early fans left the field scarred with burned and torn up turf, at which point the umpires called the second game, saying the field was unplayable. Bill Vech disagreed.
4: Well, I felt that it was playable, and I felt that the people would behave and would stay off the field and there would be no further incidents. They didn't agree with me and they said the field was unplayable. I do not agree with that either. I would suggest that everyone go out and look at the field and decide for themselves whether it's unplayable or not.
3: The field probably was playable, but whether or not there would have been further incidents is open to conjecture. Ken Kravick was to have pitched that second game.
4: When I talked to the other players, the majority was that they didn't want to play because, you know, you're you're more or less the safety of yourself was in your hands. I went down to the bullpen originally to start warming up for the second you know, uh, game, and I was very I was really conscious of getting hit with something. Uh, as I warmed up, there were shoes being thrown out in between me and Shula As I was warming up, firecrackers, records were, and I just, my concentration was just nothing.
3: Yet Vec saw no reason not to continue. I didn't feel that
4: there was, uh, uh, that the players were endangered. I wouldn't want to play.
3: Well, it's pretty hard to sympathize with Vec. He says the fans who rioted were not true baseball fans, and that's the problem. The White Sox are inviting trouble by catering to an audience not interested in baseball. The fans who rioted didn't come to see the White Sox or Detroit. They came to do their thing, and they did. At the expense of the White Sox, the Detroit Tigers, and the city of Chicago. Tiger manager Sparky Anderson summed it all up when he said,
4: I've never seen anything like it. It's sad. It's uh, I would say it's a black mark on baseball.
3: Still unanswered is whether or not the White Sox will have to forfeit that second game. That decision is up to league president Lee McPhail. And as things stand now, the game is scheduled as part of a Sunday doubleheader. This is Brad Palmer.
0: July 13, 1934. Babe Ruth hits his 700 home run in a 4-2 victory over Tommy Bridges and the Detroit Tigers. Lou Gehrig left in the first inning with a severe case of lumbago, the most serious threat to his streak. He returned for one at-bat the next day.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, I am the Bear of Texas and I am back once again to talk a little bit of baseball. I'm going to kick it off by talking a bit about the greatest baseball player who ever lived. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking about Babe Ruth. July 13th, 1934. Babe Ruth hit career home run number 700. Unfortunately, 1934 was his final full year as a member of the New York Yankees. A couple things to talk about that year. He accepted a pay cut to $35,000 from Colonel Rupert, who owned the New York Yankees. Now, $35,000 back then, well, that was a hell of a lot of money. And even though he took a major pay cut, he was still the highest paid player in the major leagues. Now this is 1934 this is Babe Ruth's literally on the decline I mean he's older he's not as in sh- good shape as he was in before he's still a bit productive with the bat but overall his skill as a his skills as a ballplayer they're nearly depleted now, this was his final year with the New York Yankees and The Yankees will go on to finish the season in second place seven games behind the Detroit Tigers. Now, that year, Babe Ruth was still able to do well. Like I said, he was still productive with the bat as he finished with a .288 batting average and 22 home runs. That's respectable. I mean, Babe Ruth, you know, a veteran baseball player who was, you know, his prime years were all, everything was past him. Babe Ruth was just trying to finish out baseball in style so even though he was an aging veteran baseball player with nothing much left he was still trying to do his best in the name of the game of baseball and you have to give Ruth respect for that because he knew that even though he was in the decline there was no excuse to not go down swinging.
0: July 13th 1963. At the age of 43 Early Wynn pitches the first five innings to record his 300th victory when the Indians down the Kansas City A's 7-4. The win will be future Hall of Famer's last in the Major Leagues and will finish his 23-year career with a 300-win, 244-loss record. June 13, 1971 In a game featuring six home runs, including Reggie Jackson crushing a Doc Ellis pitch off the power generator located on Tiger Stadium's right field roof, 520 feet away from home plate. The American League beats the National League 6-4. The junior circuits only win from 1963 to 1982. All the players who Homer, Johnny Bench, Hank Aaron, Roberto Clemente, Frank Robinson, Harmon Killebrew, and Reggie Jackson will become members of the Hall of Fame.
1: It was the bottom of the third in Detroit at the 1971 Midsummer Classic. 25-year-old Reggie Jackson was at the plate, and what came next was the biggest blast in All-Star Game history. that Reggie Jackson hit at the Tiger Stadium was the hardest hit ball I ever saw. I didn't think it would ever land anywhere. The homer jump-started a four-run rally, and the American League went on to win its first All-Star game since
0: 1962. When I did hit that one, I kind of knew it was out of the ballpark. I don't think there was any question. July 13th, 1977. With New York third baseman Lenny Randall at the plate in the sixth inning, Shea Stadium goes dark, when the Big Apple suddenly experiences a blackout. Before the suspension of the game against the Cubs, the Mets players drive their cars onto the field, amusing the crowd by performing various antics in front of the headlights.
2: The answer to the baseball quiz, in a to Ernie Banks, the only other players ever to be elected to the Hall of Fame on the first ballot were Ted Williams, Sandy Koufax, Mickey Mantle, Stan Musial, Warren Spahn, Bob Feller, and Jackie Robinson. And the most amazing thing about it is that Joe DiMaggio was not elected on the first ballot. And the lights have just gone off here at Shea Stadium. Car failure here at Chase Stadium. The lights are all off with the exception of the emergency lights. So the lights are off here at Chase Stadium. All the lights are off. We see matches being lit around, cigarette lighters. The emergency lights are on in the areas around the hallways, the corridors, and what have you, but a power failure here at Shea Stadium, and this is the first one in the history of Shea Stadium. Well, now cigarette lighters lighting up all around the ballpark. Players on the field now coming off. The dugouts are completely in darkness. Well, Ralph, we've seen about everything here at Shea Stadium. and our 14 years of working here, this is the first time we ever had a power failure. time and they went off so quickly it was almost unbelievable the umpires are huddling out near the first base area we can barely make them out just in their silhouette fashion now an announcement being made and the announcement is that obviously there is a brownout here in the area around shea stadium we can see the cars driving by in the outfield beyond the outfield area, and the car is going over the Whitestone Bridge and there, as uh, this stadium is in total darkness except for the emergency lights that are in the stadium hallways and what have you.
0: July 14th, 1916, Browns hurler Ernie Coop pitches a complete game going all 17 innings of the scoreless tie. Carl Mays pitches the first 15 innings for the Red Sox, with Dutch Leonard finishing the game 0-0. July 14, 1946 Despite a home run and a quartet of doubles by Lou Boudreau, the Indians still lose to the Red Sox 11-10, thanks to Ted Williams' three round trippers and eight RBIs. In the nightcap of the twin bill, player manager Boudreau will become the first skipper to employ the Williams Shift which puts all of the infielders and two outfielders on the right side of the field. Laughing at the unusual alignment, the splendid splinter doubles in his first at-bat against the new defense. July 14, 1967. Against Giants right-hander Juan Marichal at Candlestick Park, Eddie Matthews hits his 500th home run as an Astro. The former brave third baseman who hit 493 home runs playing for the franchise in Boston, Milwaukee, and Atlanta, becomes the seventh major leaguer to reach this plateau.
1: Matthews singled up the middle his first time, up and struck out. He's one for two. Jim Wynn at second, Rusty Staub at first. And nobody out here in the sixth. Juan Marichal scratches the pitch. will
2: hit ball in the deep right field. Way back, Brown, number 500 for Eddie Matthews. Matthews has just hit the golden 500. Well installed, cross in front of him, and this has got to be a tremendous thrill. The entire Astros bench is up. Eddie Matthews has just hit his 500th home run. And the entire Astro bench is coming out of the dugout to Swarm Eddie Matthews. It couldn't happen to a nicer guy. And it's poetic justice that it happens against one of the game's greatest pitchers, if not the greatest, Juan Marichal, and the
0: Astros' six-four. July 14, 1968. In the nightcap of a twin bill, Don Wilson strikes out 18 batters in a nine-inning game to tie a major league record shared by Bob Feller from the Indians 1938 and Sandy Koufax of the Dodgers 1959 and 1962. The Astros right-hander fans future Hall of Famer Johnny Bench for the last out of his 6-1 victory over the Reds on a wind-swept night at Crosley Field.
1: third base. Two men out, last half of the ninth. Houston leads at 6-1. to one. The pitch to Johnny Bench, swing and a miss. One ball, one strike. 17 strikeouts for Wilson, and one more out to go. He has a one ball, one strike count on John Bench. Look over to third. Here's the pitch by Wilson. Ball outside, two balls, one strike. Sandy Koufax struck out 18 San Francisco Giants in 59, 18 Chicago Cubs in 1962. Here's the pitch now. Swing and a miss, two balls, two strikes. Two outs, ninth inning. Well, it's got down to the point now whether Don can get number 18 in the strikeouts. He can tie the major league record. Here's the pitch to Johnny Bench, high and outside, a full count of three balls, two strikes. Oh, you wouldn't believe the weather we're getting here amid all this excitement. Wind ball rain is really coming down. Here's the wind up in the three and two pitch to Johnny Bench. He got him 18 strikeouts. And Don Wilson becomes the fourth pitcher, actually the third pitcher, the fourth time in the history of the Major League to strike out 18 batters in a nine-inning ball game.
0: July fifteenth, nineteen oh one. Christy Mathewson becomes the first rookie to throw a no-hitter in baseball history in the modern era. The 20-year-old right-hander who will hurl another no-hit game in 1905 holds the Cardinals hitless in the 5-0 Giants' victory at Robison Field in St. Louis. July 15, 1962 In the seventh inning of the nightcap of a twin bill split with the Pirates at Forbes Field, Cardinal left fielder Stan Musial establishes a new National League record with his 10,428th time at bat. Stan, the man who will finish his 22-year career with 10,972 plate appearances, surpasses Hannes Wagner's mark set in 1917. Upon further research, the Flying Dutchman gains two additional at-bats. July 15, 2005 With an RBI double off Joel Pinero at Safeco Field, Rafael Palmeiro becomes the 26th player to collect 3,000 hits. The Orioles' first baseman joins Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, and Eddie Murray as one of only four major leaguers to record 3,000 hits and 500 home runs in his career.
1: Pinero's pitch to Rafael Palmero swung on, and this is a flare down the left field line. It's going to go into the corner. And a base hit for Rafael Palmero. Scoring the runner, legging down to second base with a stand-up double. 3,000 hits for Rafael Palmero joining Aaron Mays and Murray. 26th man in the history of the game of baseball to end up with 3,000 hits. And he ties Roberto Clemente with 3,000. Boy, what an achievement.
0: July 16th, 1920. Babe Ruth broke his own season record of 29 home runs with his 30th as the New York Yankees beat the St. Louis Browns 5-2. Ruth would finish the season with 54
5: ladies and gentlemen I am the bear of Texas and I'm back to talk more about Babe Ruth we get to July 16 1920 Babe Ruth is in his first year with the New York Yankees he breaks his own season record of 29 home runs when he hits home run number 30 for the year and here's what's really really interesting folks he would finish that season with a total of 54 home runs. Another interesting fact about his first season with the Yankees in 1920, this was the season where he would convert from a pitcher to an outfielder due to his desire of having more playing time and playing every single day. Obviously, he had there were games where he did not play, but the point is he did not want to pitch. He wanted to play more because his power hitting skills make a name for himself he knew that he was great for the bat he wanted to take full advantage of it so we have to applaud Babe Ruth for that let's take a little bit of the stats he played in 142 games that year which was you know a new career high for him although he would break that record that next year in 1921 when he played in 152 games his first season with the Yankees 458 at bats 172 hits scored 158 runs 54 home runs 135 RBIs and finishing with a slugging percentage of 847 and a batting average of 376. Very respectable. Now the Yankees did not start off the season good. By the end of April the Yankees were 4-7 and seven, and Ruth had not really done much yet. He unfortunately was injured for that little part of the season but it would soon change. As things got better, record attendance was getting better and better with the New York Yankees. So when Babe Ruth got healthy and started doing what he does best, slugging balls left and right, things just got better and better and better. Because large crowds would jam the stadiums to see Ruth play when the Yankees were on the road. At that point, ladies and gentlemen, everybody in the United States wanted to see Babe Ruth play ball. And quite frankly, you cannot blame them because Babe Ruth changed baseball forever killing the dead ball era. He put a new era of baseball that even has significant impact today. So it should not be a surprise to anybody that people during that time would do whatever it takes to get a chance to come see the greatest baseball player who ever lived.
0: July 16th, 1969. Rod Carew steals home for the seventh time this season establishing a new American League record, tying Peter Riser's Major League mark for swiping home in one season. After further research in 1991, the record is given back to Ty Cobb, who had stolen home eight times in 1912. July 16, 1990. Steve Lyons slides headfirst into first base to beat out a bunt. The play becomes memorable when the White Sox first baseman drops his pants to brush away the dirt inside his uniform in front of 14,770 surprised fans at Tiger Stadium. There's
1: the bunt, that could be trouble, As Petrie, no, Stevie dives in and beats it. Good effort by Steve Lyons. That'll be a base hit right there. Good job. I'll tell you one thing, not a bad defensive play either by the Tigers. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. He's going to get the dirt out, and all of a sudden he unbuckled his pants and they fell down. The face is about the
2: same color as the bill of that cap right now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Jeez, I don't think that's really the proper pl- place to do that, but he forgot where he was. Yeah. He had a vapor lock. Yeah. He had a brain cramp. Oh my! Good job, though,
1: by Lyons. I'll tell you, push that ball past the pitcher, make the first baseman field it.
0: And that was Cecil right there. Close play, but he beats it. July sixteenth, nineteen ninety nine. The first time Enter Sandman is played as an entrance song for Mariano Rivera, the Yankee closer who blows the save, giving up four ninth-inning runs in the team's 10-7 loss to Atlanta. The ownership, after seeing San Diego's fans' enthusiastic reaction to Padres closer Trevor Hoffman, was getting during the World Series with ACDC's Hell's Bells, comes up with the iconic Metallica heavy metal rock song for the quiet Panamanian who is a devout Christian. July 17, 1890. For the first time in baseball history, two 300-game winners are opponents as Tim Keefe of the Giants faces Pittsburgh's Jim Pud Galvin in a Players League matchup. New York beats the Burgers 8-2 in the first of four historic confrontations between the two future members of the Hall of Fame. July 17, 1936. Carl Hubble's 24-game winning streak over two years began as he defeated the Pittsburgh Pirates 6-0 on a five-hitter. July 17, 1941. Thanks to the outstanding defensive work of Indians third baseman Ken Keltner, Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak ends in Cleveland's Municipal Stadium in front of 67,000 fans. The Yankee Clipper who batted 408 during the stretch will begin another streak that will last 17 games, extending the remarkable span of hitting safely to 73 of 74 games. July 17, 1990 minnesota becomes the first team in baseball history to turn two triple plays in the same game the twins multiple around the horn triple killings both being accomplished after being started by the third baseman 5 five five four three triple play aren't enough when the team loses to the red sox at fenway park one nothing
1: third base one there two there Triple play. Holy mackerel. The Twins have just rolled off a triple play on a perfect ball for Gaietti to do. They go. And Gaietti has won. They got two. And they've got another triple play. Mercy me, Gerald. <laughs> and Mr. Morgan. The second time the Twins have started a triple play in this game.
0: July 18, 1927, Ty Cobb of the Philadelphia Athletics, the past 22 seasons with the Detroit Tigers, doubled for his 4,000th hit at Detroit's Navin Field while former teammate Sam Gibson in the first inning. July 18, 1970, Giants outfielder Willie Mays in his 2,639th Major League game Singles off of Expo's right-hander Mike Wegener for his 3,000th hit. The Say Hey Kid reaches the milestone in the second inning of San Francisco's 10-1 route of Montreal at Candlestick Park. July 18, 1999. On Yogi Berra Day at Yankee Stadium, David Cohn becomes the 16th pitcher in Major League history and the third Yankee, to toss a perfect game when he beats the Expos 6-0. In pre-game ceremonies, Don Larson threw out the ceremonial first pitch to Yogi, commemorating his 1956 World Series perfect game.
1: Nobody loved more on this Yankee ball club, despite the perfect game, than David Cohn. He is a spokesperson for this ball club. Brian Cashman, the general manager, looking on. They respect him. They love him. And what a deal the Yankees made when they brought David Cohn to New York Yankee Stadium.
0: Here at Yankee Stadium. On Yogi Berra Day. The festivities
1: started with tears and backslapping. And it ends with tears and backslapping.
6: July 16th, 1999, Expos versus Yankees. That day would be special for not one, but two reasons because the Yankees were celebrating Don Marston's perfect game in the World Series. So David Cohen, who was pitching that day, had asked Don Larson, are you going to jump into Yogi Berra's arms? Don Larson jokingly corrected him and said, I'm sorry, kid, you got it backwards. Yogi Berra jumped into mine. And after Don Larson threw out the first pitch of the game, the game started. David Cohen was on fire. They couldn't touch him. But a 33-minute rain delay stopped, stopped the game in its tracks. David Cohen was warned that the tarp was coming off, and he would asked the ball boy if he would mind getting any and help him get his arm loose so he continued the game. The, boy, the ball boy accepted. As the Yankees resumed the field with the Expos, David Cohn again was in perfect form. And he was absolutely perfect. He would throw a perfect game. After dropping to his knees, the catcher would would hug him, and the Yankees would go nuts, and so would the crowd. This would be the third perfect game in Yankee history, and the Yankees are the only team to ever have two perfect games back-to-back. David Wells had in 1998 against the Minnesota Twins. As they carried David Cone off the field, the crowd went absolutely crazy and David got a tears in his eyes. Unfortunately for David Cone, he would only get one more win the rest of the season, but Yankee fans always remember on the day they celebrate Don Larson's perfect game, David Cone was Mr. Perfect. I am Mark Run for light to Cowhide. We thank you very much. And as always, we will see
0: you real soon. July 18th, 2013. New York Yankees closer Mariano Rivera made his last appearance at a Major League Baseball All-Star game as a player. The all-time leader in saves is calling it a career at the end of 2013 and got a very appropriate send-off from a Met-heavy crowd at Citi Field.
1: In a packed stadium in an all star game, Mariano Rivera was out on that field all alone. It's his spotlight. It's his eighth inning. The best in the business when we come back. Field and on the mound is Mariano Rivera. 30 saves this season, 638 in his career. Here's a 1 2. That's Kipnis. One away. Left field hard hit, but caught by Gordon out in left. Received criticism of any kind. A 16 pitch, three up, three down, all star game finale from Mariano Rivera. How many people in any walk of life can you say that about? Respected across this game by the players by the people who pay to fill these stadiums. What a man. Let's go to the ninth. Three nothing, American League.
6: Midsummer class would come to New York City, this time in the home of New York Mets City Field. But in the eighth inning, something very, very special happened. So special that I got choked up watching it on TV, and my cousins who were there, who are not even Yankee fans, by the way, got choked up as well. Because in the eighth inning, Mariano Rivera was called to come out to come out and pitch. As San played over over the loudspeaker, normally only played at Yankee Stadium, but for tonight to honor the but on this night to honor the legend, City Field played for him. As he started to turn out to the field, the thunderous ovation got louder and louder. And when he got to the mound, he realized that he was standing alone. He got choked up, tipped his hat, waved, waved to the fans and waved to both benches. And the reason why? Because both benches were giving him the standing ovation he so richly deserved. Before his warps, he was crying. And it's understandable why. The two and a half minute standing ovation was a thunderous and most loudest I've ever heard in any ballpark at a Midsummer Classic. It's unbelievable that both teams would clear their bench for one, for one man. As right before the commercials and as his warmup had started, Joe Brook had said it's his his night, in his field. I have never seen a ballpark. I have never seen anything like it in my life, and more importantly, not at any All-Star game. I've never seen only one guy stand alone, and I'm pretty sure it's never it never happened again. Mario Rivera would be named the MVP of this particular of this particular midsummer classic. After the game, Joe. After the game, Joe Buck of, of Fox Sports had asked him, "Mariano, how did you feel to stand out there alone and hear the thunder salvation? His answer to the first question was, "I have no idea what happened, and I don't care. But it was. I wasn't expecting that from both teams." He jokingly said, then he thanked the fans for the thunder salvation, thanks City Field for playing under Sandman, both team, thanks both teams for for applauding him, and he also thanked all of professional baseball." Mario Aveiro will always be remembered as a, hum- as a humble man, and always be remembered as one of the greatest players of- in baseball history. This is Mara from Horset to Cowhead. We thank you very much, and as always, we'll see you real soon.
7: Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. This is Nick Russell, a.k.a. El Oso Negro, from the Bear Cave, and also from the Mac and Black Podcast, here to talk to you about a little Yankees baseball. Well, today is July 18th, and you know it's a lot of history with the New York Yankees here on this date. On July 18th, 1999, David Cohn pitched the perfect game against the Montreal Expos. On this date, back in 2019, our faithful manager Aaron Boone got thrown out, not before or not even afterwards, when he told the umpire that he needed to tighten that stuff up because he got savages that's up in the box war crying a monkey that the yankees would take last year all the way to game six to the alcs but what i really want to talk to you about is one of the greatest closers in the game this on this date back in 2013 made his final all-star game appearance at city field and that person is mariano rivera mariano rivera as we all know started off as a starter for the new york yankees but it just wasn't going well for him so then they sent him down had to work on the cutter and said when we bring it back up we're gonna turn you into a reliever and see how good you could be. And let's not forget, in 1996, when he came back up, when the Yankees called him up, he then became a setup man for then closer John Wetland. But when John Wetland went to the Texas Rangers in 1999 or after the 1997 season, our closer became Mariano Rivera, and the rest is history. Mariano Rivera would not only finish his 19-year career as having the most saves in history but he would also only blow one World Series save that was against the Diamondbacks in 2001, but did close out in 98, 99, 2000, and 2009 on road to five World Championships altogether. Mariano Rivera, not only was he the greatest closer that's ever played, but notice that he was the only closer that ever played that only based on one pitch, the cutter. In his earlier days, his cutter reached 94, 95 miles an hour where he could blow people away with it. But as he got older, his velocity went down. But the one thing that you could admire about Mario Rivera with the cutter is you knew what was coming, but you never knew where he was going to throw it. And one of the best things of Mariano was his ability to paint corners with that same pitch and soft bats. Ladies and gentlemen, we saw the last guy to ever not only wear number 42, but the first guy to ever be voted as unanimous vote into the Hall of Fame. So I tip my cap to the greatest closer that ever lived, but not only was he the greatest closer that ever lived, he was the greatest closer that ever lived Don in the Yankee Jersey. I'm Nick Russell from the Mac and black podcast until next time.
0: And that's it for this week's episode of horse hide to cow hide America's pastime. First, I'd like to thank our contributors this week, Mark, Enzo, Alex, and Nicholas For their contributions to the show I'd also like to thank my little brother Chris Rex For helping me edit all of this stuff With last minute notice Uh, Our production company here We just do a ton And sometimes you just can't do it by yourself All the footage used on this week's show Are used under the Fair Usage Act Some of those include Major League Baseball WNEW Radio, HoustonDaily.com, Fox Sports, and more. Tune in next week for another edition of Horsehide to Cowhide, America's Pastime. See you next week.